10. It's the first chapter of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. When they had lived there about ten years, both Marlon and Chilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. Then they wept aloud again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well if even death parts me from you. 
When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, call me no longer Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Well, we've just uh, completed a, a sermon series on the book of Revelation. And you could hardly find a book that's more different from Revelation than the book of Ruth. There's a very different change, of, a, a very different pace we're entering into as we work our way through Ruth over the next four weeks. The book of Ruth is really quite a story. It's a story about a man and a woman, a Boaz and Ruth, who find each other. They happen to be the great-grandparents of King David, and it's a story of them marrying. But it's not a love story in the romantic sense. It's deeper and richer than that. And we're going to begin today to unpack this story together and ponder together, think, to think together about what, what is really going on behind the scenes. What does the story mean? It's actually a beautifully told story, and there are moments which really make you think as you read it. And we want to let this story come alive for us as well. So this chapter, uh, chapter 1 of Ruth, begins with, this, with the phrase, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. The days when the judges ruled. Well, when was that? When was the period of the judges? Well, this was the time after the Hebrews had come into the promised land, into Canaan. They, the tribes spread around throughout Canaan, each of them taking different areas for themselves, and they settled there, but they were surrounded by and often intermingled with other peoples who'd been there before them. And this period of the judges was a hard and often brutal period for the people of Israel. They are attacked by one after another of the nations around them, including the Philistines, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Midianites, the list goes on and on, and they attack them as well. During this, this period, men and also at least one woman, Deborah, are called to be judges, and they lead the people, and sometimes they lead them to victory over their enemies as the fortunes of Israel ebb and wane. It's also a period when... Um, Israelites themselves fought against each other, and they're very painful stories, some of them in the book of Judges. It's also a period of spiritual uh, seduction when the Israelites are pursuing the gods of their neighbors, as it says in Judges chapter 10. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, these are the gods of their neighbors, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. 
he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites. Now, horrible things happened for the Israelites during that time. You can read the book of Judges and weep. After such promise, the amazing rescue from Egypt, they fall into the depths of depravity and moral confusion. So the book of Judges finishes with this phrase, in those days, Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. And that phrase contrasts with another phrase which says that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They did what they saw was, fit, was right in their own eyes. And as we read that, we could be reminded of Genesis 6 verse 5 and a similar judgment that's made on humankind, that every inclination of the human heart is towards evil. Uh, Genesis 6 5 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Now, towards the end of this dark and chaotic period, the days when the judges ruled, this is when the story of Ruth takes place. And it's the beginning of the answer to that chaos. It's the beginning of a response to that period of evil. It was a dark time, and the story of Ruth also starts with a dark tale, a tale of human disappointment and agony. Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, which, which means God is king, they face starvation in Bethlehem. Actually, Bethlehem means house of bread, but in the house of bread there was no bread, there was a famine. So Naomi and Elimelech, uh, they, they decide to move somewhere else and they take their two sons and they travel together to Moab. Now, what was Moab like? That's what was Moab, what Moab was like. In 2 Kings, chapter 3, verse 4, there's a mention of the tribute paid by Moab to Israel. It says, Mesha, king of Moab, raised sheep, and he had to pay the king of Israel a tribute of 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. So this is sheep and goat country. It wasn't a country of bread. It was a, it was a country of lamb chops. So Elimelech leaves the hills of Bethlehem where the crops are failing and he goes to live with his family amongst the Moabites who were pastoralists, raising animals in the dry hill country, the plateau, uh, to the east of the Dead Sea. We've got a map here. So you need to understand Israel and Judea. This is hilly country, suitable both for sheep and also for, for wheat and barley. And so they, they leave Bethlehem where there's a famine and they go round into the, the rift valley in which Jericho is placed and then up into the hills again. They cross the river Arnon through the territory of Reuben, which is a bit more fertile, and into the territory of Moab. Now, the Moabites were very closely related to the Hebrews. We know that because someone found an inscription uh, which describes battles that occurred between the Moabites and the Israelites, actually battles that are mentioned in the Bible. And from that inscription, we know that the language is very similar it was a closely related dialect. In fact, the number of the tribes that the Israelites had difficulties were their, their, their kin. They were like very close languages to them. Not all of them, some were completely different, but some of them were culturally and linguistically almost identical, except that they worshipped different gods. The other thing um, to realize too about the Moabites is that they were a, a, a big issue, a problem. The Moabites were enemies of Israel closely related, but in a constant battle with them. 
And for a time, as we read in chapter 3 of Judges, through the period of the Judges, the Moabites ruled over the Israelites for a number of years. And then the Israelites overthrew Moab, and it happened when one of the Israelites went and tricked the king of Moab and stabbed him to death and then fled. And it, it, it says that the Israelites defeated the Moabites and they killed 10,000 Moabites at that time. So there was no love lost between the Israelites and the Moabites, although they were nevertheless closely related culturally and linguistically. Also, that's not all. The law of Moses says that a Moabite or an Ammonite, a Moabite man or an Ammonite man, is excluded from the temple even down to their 10th generation. So other people could presumably ally with Israel and become and join with the Israelites, but the Moabites were not allowed to, even to 10 generations. So not welcome, you could say. Moabites, bad news. Well, why is there this rejection? You can see shades of it too in the story of where the Moabites came from, which is in the Bible. That is, it's the story of how Lot had these two daughters and they were living in an isolated place. There were no men, so the daughters got their father drunk in order to have sex with him, and the eldest daughter had a child who, is, the Bible says, was the ancestor of the Moabites. Furthermore, when the Israelites were coming on their way to the Promised Land, the Moabites sought to divert them through intermarriage. And in Numbers 25, we read that the Israelite men were intermarrying with the Moabite women, and this was a really bad thing because it led the Israelites to go after the Moabite gods, including the Moabite god Chemosh. And the Moabite gods demanded child sacrifice. That was common to all the Canaanite peoples. The Israelites came out of that background as well. So they were going back into that culture. So there's a warning there already that the Moabites are trouble, especially when you marry with them. So Elimelech, God is king is his name, and Naomi make this journey. And they live there for some years and long enough for their two sons to find wives there. Now, that's already a problem because of all the history I've explained. But if you know Hebrew and you could speak Hebrew, you'd know that the names of these two sons could give you a bit of a clue about what's going to happen. Because one son, son is called Mahlon, which actually means sickly, and the other son is called Chilion, which means failing, wasting away, or destruction. I don't know who would call their sons sickly and wasting away, but there we go. So it's a problem that they marry these, these Moabite women, because that's what had caused so much problem to Israel in the past. What were Elimelech and Naomi thinking? Going to Moab, marrying their sons to Moabite women. Judges 3 comments on these intermarriages. It says, The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their, to their sons and served their gods. That was the outcome. So they served their gods. Now, immediately after this in Judges 3, we read the consequences of this intermarriage. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. These are the, the, God, the gods and goddesses of, of the Canaanites. But there it is, sickly and wasting away, Mahlon and Chilion. They marry Moabite women, and then all the men in Naomi's family die. It's a terrible tragedy. They flee to Moab in order to escape famine and death, and in Moab, all they find is death. So Naomi's life has fallen apart. There's famine, there's flight, there's compromise, there's spiritual compromise. 
The sons marry the Moabite women, and then there's death. She must have felt under some kind of curse or judgment from the Lord. She has nothing left to her but her two Moabite daughters-in-law. Now, mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law don't always end up being the best of friends. But in Naomi's case, these two daughters-in-law seem to love her very, very dearly. But despite having these two daughters, daughters-in-law, she feels, Naomi feels, abandoned my God, which is understandable. Her husband's name was God is King, but if that's the case, look at what God has done to her. She said, I came here full with two sons and a husband, but I go back home empty with nothing left. She is done. She's done with God. She says to them, you're better off than me. You can start again, but I, I am done. God has done this to me. She's done with life. She's done with trying to have a family. Now she hears that things are picking up back in Bethlehem. So she decides to go home and see if she can somehow survive back in Bethlehem. At least there's probably still a bit of land there that, that Elimelech, her husband, owned that she could use. And in her pain and distress, she urges her two daughters-in-law who want to go with her, she urges them to stay behind. And perhaps she's having, feeling pity for them. Would Moabite women be welcome in Bethlehem? Probably not. Remember, the law of Moses was really opposed to the Moabites. For ten generations, the descendant of a Moabite man was not welcome in the temple. What would the people of Bethlehem think of Naomi bringing these, these foreigners back, these worshippers of Chemosh? Will they be supporting and welcoming her and these two women? Naomi feels utterly abandoned by God, perhaps even cursed, and she doesn't want her daughters-in-law to, to continue to carry the bad fortune that's marked her life. She wants them to stay with their people and to start again and have a family. So she decides to go home with nothing in her hands. She has no husband, she has no sons, she has no grandchildren, and even her daughters-in-law she tries to leave behind. She urges them to stay in Moab, their own people there, and perhaps remarry. Stick with their gods. She says, stay with your gods and with your people. All she has back in Jerusalem is memories and perhaps a bit of land belonging to her husband. So Naomi throws in the towel and she turns for home. She walks through those gorges and valleys and wadis, down into the valley and up into the hills again, going home. But, but, her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, are obviously um, precious to her. She calls them her daughters. And because she loves them and she feels like she's got nothing to offer them, she urges them not to come with her. And she says to them, you know, that there's this custom that if a husband dies, the, the, the woman could marry a brother. But she says, I have to have more sons if that was to happen. And who can, how can I do that? I can't even offer you that. You've got no prospect of finding a husband if you come with me. And, but then in the middle of her pain, there is a surprise. There's something amazing happens. And what ha happens is that Ruth declares her devotion to Naomi. Orpah, in the end, decides to go back to Moab when Naomi keeps urging her to do so. But Ruth uh, professes an undying commitment to Naomi. It's something deeper than just a friendship, deeper than just affection. Remember, and this is really important, that the, that the Bible warns the Israelites not to be led astray by the Moabites and the other people. Because, the Bible says, 
your men will go after the women's gods. But here, Ruth reverses the script. She turns to Yahweh and she chooses to follow Yahweh. So she actually, even though her husband has died, and even though Naomi, the follower of Yahweh, has had nothing but disaster in her life, Naomi wants to follow Yahweh and wants to go with Naomi. So Ruth wants to follow Yahweh and wants to go uh, with Naomi. And there's this famous and very beautiful verse. Ruth says in verses 16 to 17, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So she's saying, if, when you go back there, I'm going to stay there. Even after you're dead, I'm going to make sure I die in the place that you die. That's my commitment to you. And she curses herself. May the Lord deal with me. May Yahweh deal with me if I don't keep this promise. It's an amazing turnaround, really. <laughs> Naomi feels at the end of her tether, she's done, she's got nothing left. But actually, this was not the end of Naomi's story. It wasn't. God had not abandoned her. She felt that was the case but it was not true. God's rescue is about to unfold, and it begins with Ruth's love for her, her devotion to Naomi, and also Ruth's devotion to Naomi's God. And we're going to see how this unfolds in the chapters ahead. I wish I could jump to chapter 4, because it's exciting. But this is the beginning. This is like the wedge of grace that's coming into Naomi's story. You will see, you will see. And the first sign of the rescue, the redemption that's going to come into Naomi's life is Ruth's declaration of her faith in Yahweh and her loyalty to Naomi, that she is willing to adopt an Israelite identity herself and to be loyal to her Israelite mother-in-law and to follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. Even though Naomi has done exactly what the Word of God had forbidden she had given her sons in marriage to Moabite women, even though she'd done that terrible thing according to the law, God has a good plan for Naomi. And he's going to take that thing that she did, even though there was pain in the outcome, he's going to take that thing and he's going to turn it around and it's going to be a source of incredible blessing because God has a good plan for Naomi. He is reversing the situation and it begins when Naomi decides to go back to Bethlehem. Instead of Ruth leaving Naomi to go back to worshipping Chemosh, this god of human sacrifice, Ruth chooses to follow, to follow Yahweh, to go with Naomi. And that spiritual change of direction for this Moabite woman, this conversion really in her life, begins to open a new chapter for Naomi. God is good. God is good. As I said, I wish I could go straight to chapter 4, but we're going to have to walk through it. And by the way, if you'd like to engage more with the book of Ruth, of course you can read it, but I'd encourage you to read the book of Judges and really grasp the contrast that's being laid out here. Because the way the people act in the book of Ruth is very different from what's in Judges. God is doing something new, and he's taking someone from this rejected tribe of Moabites in order to do it as well. That's also quite an incredible thing about this story. You know, our sins, what we've done wrong, 
do not define our future in God. Where we've fallen down or gone astray, or even when we felt battered or bruised by God, this does not define our future in God. Because God can take where we've been and the wrong that's happened and the things that have happened to us, and He can turn it around. Our pain does not define God's potential in our life. Your pain and disappointment and brokenness doesn't limit the power of God to redeem and renew your life. That's what the story of Ruth is about. And this redemption that we're going to see, it has enormous consequences. It leads even to David, and it leads through to Jesus as well. This is like an opening of door of grace. And my prayer for you is that you would know that too for your lives, as you face the reality of the places you've been and the brokenness that you've given and that you've received, that you'd find hope through this series to know the God who rescues and who saves. And also have the discernment to see when that process begins, to be able to respond to the grace of God, as, as Naomi does too, as she, throughout the story, she turns out to be quite the woman and uh, God uses her powerfully in what happens ahead. Our sins do not define our potential uh, in God. They don't limit our, God's potential in our life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this beautiful story of a woman lost who you found and you brought back to Bethlehem of all places. Help us to remember when we look at the broken pieces of our existence and the places that have, where our dreams have been shattered, help us to remember, Lord, that you are faithful and you do not abandon us. Even when it feels that way, that's not the case. And Lord, I pray that there would be a really an outbreak of grace, of restoration, a spirit of newness, of new stories being written in our lives, of new beginnings at this time. Lord, I thank you that the story of your grace is as yet not completely written in our lives, that there's more, that you have more for us, more of your salvation, more of your rescue, more of your intervention. And grant us, Lord, to be people who have open eyes to what you're doing. And Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts to go back to Bethlehem, to go back to the place uh, where you called us first, where, where we knew you, where, we, where our future is, our identity is. Lord, I pray for a spirit of restoration, of returning uh, to the Lord in this congregation in many different ways, in all our individual stories and in our story together, Lord, that we would come to you, that we would dare to go back to you, to come to you and look and see that you are good and that you have good things for us. In Jesus' name, amen.